0: Welcome to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast, where we support your quest for a happier, healthier, planet friendly life that supports you, your family, and community. We share local information, resources, and support, and opportunities to volunteer for projects that help clean, protect, and repair the environment. This episode is a bonus episode from another show. It includes an interview of a Northern Nevada local who is taking green action through their vocation, volunteer work, or hobby. These stories are interesting and informational and are a great way to get to know our local community better. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is a certified arborist and started helping others grow their own edible landscapes and turned this into a flourishing business. We are talking with Christoph Weber. Christoph Weber is a Reno, Nevada local, a certified arborist, home orchardist, and a board member at the University of Nevada Arboretum. He is also an award-winning author with works in the Journal of Nature, Vice's Terraform, and other excellent venues. Welcome, Christoph.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: We're so excited to speak with you and find out more about what you're doing in the Northern Nevada community with your edible landscaping business and with your other projects.
1: I'm excited to speak with you, Jenny, and your listeners.
0: Yeah. So using the metaphor of a garden, what in your past helped create the right conditions to start growing some green action?
1: I would say Probably analogous to, you know, having fertile soil, there's a lot of factors that go into it. But if I had to pick, you know, one driving factor, it'd probably just be that uh, as I, every year that goes by, I see a biophile, just somebody who's really deeply interested in life and living systems. I think green action is a pretty natural result of that personal progression. But again, like just as, you know, soil involves inputs of organic matter, and all the organisms that are involved in you know, decomposition. And there's a lot of things that went into it, but I would say overall just an interest in life and living systems.
0: So what helped you decide like specifically what you wanted to do?
1: Honestly, probably dissatisfaction with where I was. I'd been living in some pretty large, densely populated cities and um, I had begun taking some steps toward a uh, legal career. And it took uh, only one law graduate law course to know that was not for me, that I wouldn't be very happy doing that. So I made some pretty radical changes. I got a job first with the Bureau of Land Management and then the Forest Service, um, initially doing wildland firefighting. You know, maybe it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, but at least got me outside and, you know, in, in the natural world, which was a better office for me. So I'd say dissatisfaction. And then, you know, the firefighting. You know, we'd spend weeks at a time camped out, uh, often eating meals ready to eat, Department of Defense manufactured meals, which I hated. So that's when I really started studying botany, I would say, mostly just to learn how to supplement my diet with wild foods. And then I started going down the rabbit hole and just getting the more I learned about plants and all the really crazy, mysterious, amazing things that they do, the more interested I became. So I left FIRE, became an arborist, and then that led to edible landscape design, propagation, um, you know, helping the university out with some of their things. And uh, yeah, that's uh, it's been kind of a, a strange road, but one that I've enjoyed.
0: That's great. So when you had decided on edible landscaping business, you started as an arborist, correct?
1: Um, Yeah. So once I left FIRE, I started... I, I became an arborist, and then the edible landscaping kind of became an offshoot of what I was doing and it still remains a a relatively small part of what I do. I would say I never really consciously decided to do edible landscaping. It was a result of talking to tree care clients who were pretty dissatisfied with their landscapes, typically ornamental landscapes that were high maintenance, you know could be pretty, but were a lot of work to maintain and didn't produce anything of use to the clients, whether it's food or, or other products. And so we began looking at how to transition their landscapes, you know, keeping as much as possible, the things that they liked, but also making room for fruits, not beneficial plants, medicinal herbs for some people just transitioning their landscapes that were, you know, the more typical ornamentals into ones that required less maintenance were just as an often more beautiful and produced, you know, abundant quantities of food. And people really were excited about what we were able to do, and so I started doing more of that. So it um, wasn't really a conscious choice, it was just uh, a need that people had, which was a, a dissatisfaction with their own landscapes and a um, desire to transition them into a landscape that was lower maintenance and produced food.
0: Excellent. So how did you kind of help get the word out?
1: I didn't really okay. put out anything saying, hey, I'm doing edible landscaping. It would be, you know, help somebody transition their landscape. And then they would tell a couple other people and then I would work with them and they'd tell another couple of people. And cool. that's uh, that's kind of how it worked. I still focus more on tree care and uh, particularly now propagation for people that want fruits that they can't find elsewhere, grafting them, cloning them. Um, that kind of thing. That's that's a more of my time as an arborist goes into that than edible landscaping. So a small part, but an important part now.
0: Did you have to have a facility to do the propagation and things of that sort?
1: You know, I, I do uh, most of it at home. I do have access to a couple of greenhouses if I need them. I don't have one at home. I do a lot of indoor propagation under lights in the winter. And then as soon as, you know, temperatures are reasonable, which we're not there yet, probably June 1st day when we're free of frost. So we still got a ways to go. But for now, you know, I do a lot of things uh, indoors for the winter. It's now apple grafting season. So I can do that outdoors at this point. And then um, in a month, it'll be outdoor grafting a month or two for some stone fruits. I have to do a lot of propagation indoors under lights, which isn't my I don't really like running lights all the time. But it just—it's the only way that I found in the winter to to propagate very successfully. Okay. I don't think you need a lot of space to to grow a lot of plants if you um, organize things effectively and use your space well.
0: So a lot of the your background as an arborist gave you that kind of training. Not really.
1: I don't think we ever, in my arborist training, covered propagation. Really, that has been um, a little bit through some college-level botany courses that I've taken. Gained a little bit of knowledge through that, but largely had to learn it on my own. Uh, A book that I found really helpful for anybody that wants to get into propagation, and I would highly recommend it. There are many, many benefits to it, is um, The Reference Manual of Plant Propagation by Michael Durr. This is an excellent, excellent book for general propagation. It has sections on many different species. There are some notable omissions. Somehow grapes are not in here. But, for many woody plants that are commonly propagated, it has individual guidelines for how to go about it uh, you know whether or not things need um, basal wounding or what size of cuttings to take or when to graft um, a lot of that information's in there experimentation on on your own is still necessary, so we have to adapt things to our own climate to an extent. but a good starting point, another one that's pretty good is uh it's called plant propagation. I think it's put out by the Royal Horticultural Society, but kind of my go-to is um, the reference manual of woody plant propagation.
0: That's very interesting. So, what were some of the the challenges that you might have faced?
1: Yeah, numerous. I mean, there's been there have been plenty of frustrations. I would say, in particular, when I was starting out and really trying to grow as many plants as I could for edible landscape installations or just for other people that wanted fruit trees. Um, I honestly, I, I, when I started out, I lost a lot of plants and I killed them. (laughs) I mean, that's on me. Um, the high desert is harsh, but I think initially the lesson that I didn't fully appreciate was the importance of oxygen in the root zone. Um, Hmm. that was something that I think I was using media that were too heavy, not porous enough, um, or when planting and ground into clay that was too compacted and I wasn't adding enough, um, compost and wood chips to let the worms come in and another mic and other organisms to aerate things. Um, sure. and that's the lesson that I've, I've learned well, which is the importance of o- importance of oxygen in the root zone, which, um, you know, is fairly easily addressed. You just have to address it. If you're growing in pots, you know, make sure you have a porous medium. Some people Um, you know use perlite Uh, that's something I use there are some sustainability concerns with that Um, there are some other options other people like cinders you know there's other options and I think people need to try and find what works for themselves Um, or if growing in the ground and you have heavy clay that doesn't hold enough oxygen or pore space um, addition of compost you know an inch of compost top dressed and then you know four or five inches of wood chips on top within a year that soil is noticeably has just better texture, more organic matter, more worms, more more organisms in general, um, a better fungal population um, is really, really helpful here, particularly in the high desert where we don't have a lot of organic matter in the soil. So if you have clay, um, you really have to add it. I mean, even if you have sandy or loamy soil, organic matter is really important here and i don't think i fully appreciated that at first and i and it led to a lot of frustration and a lot of dead plants honestly um i've got a better system now and you know i still have frustrations but they're fewer and farther between
0: so let me ask you i i know i've heard that they say when you're planting a tree in the ground to use the native soil as much as possible. Did you yeah. ever integrate the compost and um, in wood chips into the soil itself or just on the top like you mentioned?
1: Um, the guidelines on that have changed from incorp you know, uh, mixing compost into the, the soil that you backfill into the planting hole. Um, some There are some problems with that um, okay. and we can get into to them if you want. Yeah, but-
0: no, no, that's fun. I just wanted to Kind of make sure that was still the guidance because I've heard that years back.
1: Ideally, if you're planting um, bare root, you arrange the roots radially so you don't have any circling roots. If you're in pot, right. same thing. You're going to need to spread some roots or prune some roots in some cases. Um, but then backfill with that native soil that you dug out. And then when it's, um, when it looks like the tree's planted with native soil, you know you top dress with usually about an inch of compost around the root zone. And then a good deep, I like to put four to six inches of wood chips down. So uh, yeah, the guidelines now, compost wood chips, still great, but keep them on top of the soil.
0: And some of your customers, like what are some of the things that they commented on about the landscape?
1: I think the biggest thing is just the, the enjoyment. People get really, really excited when they start um, harvesting from their own garden, especially if they previously had a purely ornamental or largely ornamental landscape. And then we, you know, we'll come in and start transitioning things. And some things take a while, you know, um, a lot of fruit trees can take years. I tend to use dwarfing rootstocks that speed it up. But I'll always, when I do an edible landscape, plant at least some things that will produce fruit their first year. And that usually, as soon as those are, you know, eaten, people start to get really excited. And that's when I get calls like, hey, we just had the first, you know, whatever (laughs) it is that, that we planted there, currants or... Um, blackberries or, you know, whatever it is that are, you know, usually fairly early. Um, And uh, just a sense of excitement that excites me, too, um, to see that people are, um, you know, increasing their food security, uh, number one, and enjoying it, which is just as important, I think, as being able to enjoy your garden.
0: So I know you mentioned um, when we spoke earlier that the local university, uh, the University of Nevada, Reno, is having you install this type of garden in uh, on their campus. Can you tell me what prompted them to want to do that?
1: Yeah. I've been a board member at the University of Nevada Arboretum for four or five years now. And, you know, doing things like, um, you know, writing the botanical markers for campus. We're trying to really get more of an educational component to the Arboretum so that people can come and learn trees. And each year I'd usually try to plant, you know, one or two new fruit bearing trees. But um, I think initially there might've been a little resistance from, from maintenance, you know, understandably so that having a lot of fruit on campus will um, be more work for them. Um, But it's really, it's, it's really not. And when done properly, and I think that they've really come around to the idea and embraced it. And really, I'm really glad that they're moving in that direction. Uh, Last fall, There was a kind of a blighted area on central campus. Uh, A big tree had fallen. It was very hot. They were getting complaints from people who worked in that area that there was nowhere to eat lunch in the shade. They approached me and said, hey, what do you think about doing a sort of permaculture-inspired, largely edible installation in this area? (laughs) And, you know, that was something I had been kind of seeding the idea for a couple of years. I'd I'd love to do something like that. And it, it finally... Uh, we we got a design together. It was actually supposed, we were supposed to start planning tomorrow, but due to COVID-19, we've had to push it back regardless. It'll happen. You know, the many of the plants are already grown. I I have them here and they just, uh, we're just waiting for the right time to install. Um, But it'll, you know, it'll happen. And when it does, it's going to be a really fantastic place where people um, you know, students, faculty, anyone on campus can come and taste fruits Also a place of education where local gardeners can come. Um, You know, we're hoping to have some signage on there too that explains like, okay, why is this companion plant that attracts this (laughs) pest predator next to this plant that is maybe susceptible to the pest that this predator eats? Why are nitrogen fixers next to this plant that has high nitrogen requirements? You know, why just a place of both enjoyment and a place where people can come and taste fruit And also learn how to grow them at home if they wish. That's
0: wonderful. So, if your ideas and your experience and wisdom were kind of all wrapped up in new seeds of potential action for other cities, like other people that might be thinking about doing the same thing, what advice would you give them?
1: I would say that, you know, learn from others as much as you can because there is a lot of valuable information that people have accumulated. And if you can seek out those people, Um, You can learn a lot. That being said, let your own experimentation be your guide, because there's also a lot of really bad advice out there, particularly in the gardening world. I think you need to seek out advice from others, but be selective in what advice you take Mm. and ultimately, you know, let your own experimentation be your guide. You know, especially with gardening and landscape design, every plot is going to be different from the soil to what microclimates it has, what pest predator ecology it has. Um, and this applies whether we're talking Reno versus Truckee or even two sides of the same fence that can have radically different microclimates, different sun exposures. And you can make your most educated guess as to what will work best where. Um, and this is where experience comes in handy. Mm -hmm. but ultimately you don't know until you try. So I guess the advice is take advice, make your best guess, but just keep trying because you'll discover what works and what doesn't that way. And, and, and honestly, I think a lot of the fun is in the trying. And if we're talking uh, plants, getting good at propagation will help you in this because if you're like me and you like to try a lot of marginal plants that aren't really supposed to grow here, you're going to lose some, and it'll be less painful for, you know, gardeners and their wallets if they're simply able to make more and try again in a new spot or with a different cultivar. Um, Getting good at propagation will expand um, options and and make the inevitable losses a little bit less painful.
0: So I know you mentioned a couple books that um, are helpful for you. Do you have any like other websites or films or other books that have just been helpful for you in general? Yeah, some
1: the most helpful resource that I've probably found are other local growers who are serious about it and have experience. There's not a whole lot of them, but the ones who are into it are really into it. And they've accumulated a lot of experience. Everett and Kim Broderick, early on when I was really diving into plants, I took some of their wild harvesting course workshops and one of Everett's, a couple of Everett's botany courses. They're really, really knowledgeable people. They I don't know due to COVID-19 if they're going to be putting on workshops this year, but they do have a website. It's taking root, taking root.com that people could check to see if they're going to be holding any uh, either botany classes, plant identification courses, or uh, my personal favorite, which is um, wild plant foraging, harvesting course workshops. Uh, Michael Yannick teaches uh, grafting courses each year at rail city garden center. That is a good intro to uh, apple grafting at least. Books uh, aside from the ones that I mentioned, but there's one that if you're just looking for inspiration about trees in general, not really even fruit trees, but just trees. I, I read a book called *The Overstory* uh, by Richard Preston, um, <laughs> Richard Powers. Sorry, um, it, it changed the way that I look look at trees now. It it's not really about gardening, and it's largely fiction, although it's rooted in 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 a lot of actual true events. For me, it turned what was already a deep interest and turned it into um, something that is, I would consider more of an obsession. And if you're, so, you know, be forewarned, but if you want that sort of inspiration for, for trees, The Overstory is a really just an amazing novel.
0: That's very interesting. How would you like people to contact you? Yeah,
1: probably the best is at my email. And I'm happy to field questions that people have about particularly growing fruit, fruit trees. And so I'm happy to talk about that. And if somebody has questions, um, they can email me. It's uh, Christoph at Christopheweber.com. Okay. Weber with with one B. Depending on how things go, I, I, I may be hoping hosting an open orchard slash plant sale where people can come and taste some of the fruit that I have ripe. And if they like it to buy it, a clone of that plant and have the same fruit at their place, which is something that I wish I had had access to because I planted some things that I was excited about and then tasted the fruit and said, <laughs> Oh no, I don't even like that. <laughs> yeah. And I hope that people will continue to um, develop the uh, kind of sustainable agriculture movement that is um, seems to be budding here in a, for a lot of different people and that it becomes more, widespread because i think there's a lot of people in town that have a lot of experience and knowledge and um, i myself am going to be relocating but too and i look forward to coming back and seeing that that sense of community around uh, sustainable agriculture becoming more prominent Um, and it already is making some some big steps so um, i'm excited
0: Thank you for listening to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast. We encourage you to subscribe to this show so we can send you monthly episodes and keep you up to date on opportunities for eco-friendly living in Northern Nevada. For now, please take good care of you and yours, stay well, and help us all make this a kinder, healthier, and greener community for all.